not here for college students. Following, of course, Dr. Youssef having prayed last Sunday for college students. This week, I'm preaching, and this Wednesday, I will be leading prayer for our middle school and high school students here, as Dr. Youssef prays for our middle school and high school students this morning. And then next week, Jeff Falkowski will be here. He's our young families pastor, and he will be preaching here, and then he will be leading Wednesday night. This is, uh, and he'll be leading a prayer for elementary students, following, of course, Dr. Yusuf praying for elementary students next Sunday. This is just one of the ways that we're trying to support and uh, pray for the next generation. And we've that, that understanding that we need to be praying for one another and praying for our students, praying for the, the next generation of our church. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. Uh, we're going to be at Colossians 1, 1 through 14 today. That's page 1168 in the Pew Bible. Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you in peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open your word to us today, that you will show us something from its, from its pages, that you will... Um, Convict our hearts that you will encourage us and that we will see something of Christ Jesus, your Son, here. Father, having heard your word, may we be transformed by it. May we be changed by it, Lord. May we be convicted, corrected, rebuked, and exhorted. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some years ago, I watched a comedy sketch with the venerable uh, comedian Ed Asner. And in this sketch, he was a nuclear power uh, station manager. And he was now celebrating the end of his career. And uh, they were throwing a party for him. They gave him presents and congratulated him on his retirement. And before he left, they asked him a question, what, what's some advice that you would give us as the, as the next generation of, of uh, workers here at the power plant? And, and he said, you can never put too much water in the nuclear reactor. 
And they all just smiled, and these young, you know, these young workers patted him on the back, and he left. And then it, it came time to put water into the reactor. And a fight broke out. Because one of them understood, one group of young workers understood you can't put too much water in a nuclear reactor to mean it doesn't matter how much water you put in a reactor. You could put in as much as you want. And the other group of young workers said you, you can't put too much water in a nuclear reactor means that you should not put more water than, than is necessary in a nuclear reactor. And so the rest of the sketch, they're debating back and forth. Well, which one is it? And the, de debate, the debate over this rather ambiguous statement finally comes to a conclusion where one side concedes to the other one. And they put the water into the reactor, and at the end of the sketch, you see Ed Asner looking back at the nuclear power plant and the mushroom cloud that develops over the nuclear power plant as they got it wrong. Well, see, the comedy arises from the fact that uh, it uses an ambiguous statement, but also it, it's a very important reminder of how we pass on truth to another generation. We have to be clear, because while this is comedy, the reality of not passing on our faith to the next generation is not comedy, and it can be a disaster. As we look out on a generation now that uh, seems to be leaving the church in droves, it's highly concerning that something about the process has gone wrong. Something about transferring that truth to the next generation, something about passing on our faith has gone dreadfully wrong. Part of our decade-long vision here at Church of the Apostles is the desire to pass on the whole truth to the next generation. And we talk about that a lot. And I think that all of us would want that. It's not that we don't want that. But what does it look like? What does it practically look like to pass on the truth to the next generation? What does it look, look like to pass on our faith? How do we pass on our faith? Well, I think Colossians here, the, the first part of Colossians, uh, what looks like a greeting is really a, a beautiful picture of, of what it looks like to pass on our faith to another generation. And the first thing we see here to answer the question, how do we pass on our faith, is first by sharing God's word with another. Well, you might say, well, that's a no-brainer, right? I knew that already. Um, how will someone hear unless they hear someone teach them? But notice exactly who brings the truth to the Colossians. In the case of the Colossians, verse 7 tells us that the Colossians learned the faith from Epaphras. That isn't an insignificant fact. Why do I say that? Because in almost every other instance, Paul writes to a church that he started, that he founded, that he came to, that he spent time with, that he taught them the faith and discipled them. In this case, Paul has never met the Colossians. He's never set foot that we know in Colossae. In this section, Paul is giving the introduction. The context, context is not just that they know the faith of the Colossians from firsthand experience, but they know, they've heard. He says in verse 4, we have heard of your faith. He's never actually met them face to face. This means that Epaphras, who was a companion and disciple of Paul, was so impacted by the gospel that he brought the gospel to others. But why Colossae? Well, later in the epistle in Colossians 
4.12, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you? A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras was from Colossae. You know, I knew many, many guys in seminary who came because they had a desire to take the gospel back to their hometown. That they were part of a very unchurched city and that they really wanted to bring the gospel back to their hometown. And this is exactly what Epaphras is doing. He's heard the gospel from Paul and he wants to bring it back to his own town, to the people he knows and loves. Now, Colossae was 124 miles from Ephesus. That's just a little bit, maybe a little bit more than a trip up to Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was a bit out of the way for Paul and his missionary journeys, but Epaphras was convinced that the people of Colossae needed to hear the gospel, and he took it upon himself to teach them the truth. You know, here's the thing about it. We, we typically think you know what, I want to, to I'll just take people to, to church to hear um, the expert talk about Jesus, to, to expert talk about the, the gospel. But Epaphras didn't load up a bus, well they didn't have buses, but he didn't load up a fleet of camels and take all his friends to Ephesus to hear Paul when Paul was there for a few years preaching. He didn't take a group of people to hear the expert. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with taking people to hear the expert, taking people to church, inviting people to church. We, we love the fact that you invite people to church, but we can get caught up in the idea that we do not have the expertise to share the gospel with another person. And that becomes problematic because in a day and age where people don't want to darken the door of church, we need to be willing to bring the church to them. And that's what, that's what he's doing here. That's what Epaphras is doing. Now, Colossae was a very superstitious town. And Epaphras was burdened in his heart that they learn the truth of who the real sovereign God was in their life. And he knew that he might never, ever be able to get them to take the long journey to Ephesus to hear Paul. But he also knew that the same Holy Spirit that worked through Paul could work through him to reach his brothers and sisters there in Colossae. I think we have to resist the idea that, that we don't have enough of an ability to share the gospel. Because after all, who did Jesus choose to be his disciples? Fishermen, as the people in Israel would say, ignorant Galileans, that he equipped to speak eloquently about the faith, who he equipped to transform their culture and the world around them. He can do that through us as well. We don't need to be timid about developing a relationship with someone and sharing with the, the gospel with them. But once we realize that God has equipped us to share the truth, what is the content of the truth that we share? In verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, 
as it also does among you, since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. I love that expression, hope laid up for you in heaven. That word laid up means to set aside or reserved. And, and many of you can, can remember a time before credit and before credit cards when uh, you put something in layaway. And if, if you're too young to remember what layaway is or know what layaway is, if you don't have any credit, you'll soon learn what layaway is. Uh, layaway is to take an item to the store, to put a deposit on it, and they hold it for you. And you make payments on that item until you're done, and then they relinquish that item to you. It's very similar to what the word here laid up means. It means that there's hope on layaway for us in heaven. Paul's making an analogy here. Part of the gospel truth is that hope is on layaway and that hope is our inheritance in Christ. Paul speaks of that inheritance here in verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now back in 2018, um, after people did some clever sleuthing, Tyler Perry had to admit to something that he had done. And what had he done? That Christmas, he had gone to two Atlanta Metro Walmart locations and paid off the entirety of their layaway to the tune of $400,000. Over the years, there have been many others who have shown their generosity by going in and paying off the layaway items and layaway balances at Christmas time. But Christ did one better. The hope he has laid up for us, he not only paid the deposit on, but he paid in full. Note that phrase in verse 12, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. He has qualified you. That's the gospel. And that's, where we, that's what we must be sharing. He didn't pay the deposit, and we finish out the payments. That's not the gospel. We didn't pay the deposit, and he finished out the payments. That's not the gospel either. He himself qualified us for the inheritance that he set aside for us in Christ. He paid the deposit and he paid the balance with his own blood. We simply can't share a gospel that isn't first to last about what Jesus has done because it's not the gospel and it will fail to captivate the heart of anyone. If we're sharing a gospel that is almost the gospel, we're sharing anything less than that the gospel is from God to first to last, if we're, we're sharing anything less than he's the author and finisher of our faith, then why would we expect anyone to be overwhelmed with gratitude for that kind of gospel? Because it is no gospel. It's a slinking back into moralism. We need a gospel that is of Christ from first to last, that that is what is bearing fruit amongst them. Paul testifies to that in verse 6, that that is the gospel that is bearing fruit in the whole world. That is the gospel that's bearing fruit among the Colossians. They have understood, and here's the key passage, he, they've understood the grace of God in truth. They finally comprehended it. That this isn't a situation in which they're going to pay God back because they can't. This isn't a situation where they earn the inheritance because they can't. This is the gospel we should be sharing. This is the gospel that Epaphras shared. This is what, what, what took hold of the hearts of the Colossians and, and gave them a profound sense 
of their inheritance in Christ, which they poured out in love for all the saints. They understood that the inheritance, in the words of verse 13 and 14, they understood it to be this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our hearts should be moved by those words because if you are a believer in Christ, that's your story this morning. And wouldn't you want that to be a story of someone else? Someone else that maybe you don't know, but someone else that you, you absolutely love. That's the good news. If we hope to reach our world for Christ, to reach the next generation, we can't peddle a gospel that is not the gospel. We must be clear that our Lord Jesus Christ went on a rescue mission to redeem us from the slavery of sin and bondage to death and to give us sonship in Christ. When we understand that grace, when we truly believe with every fiber of our being, and that's our reality and our identity, it motivates us to want others to know that truth. So as simple as it sounds, sharing the word of truth with another is one of the most vital ways to reach our world, to reach the next generation. But there's something else here that is perhaps a bit more elusive, something that we, we can miss on a cursory reading of this text. And the second way we reach our world, to reach others, to reach the next generation, is by praying for God's work in another. When we think about reaching others, we think about discipling them. We think about our, our mind first goes to sharing with them the word as it should. But discipling is so much more than cognitive. That's what I find remarkable about, remarkable about this passage. One of the chief means of helping others grow spiritually is prayer. Look how prayer is woven through this entire passage, starting with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Then again in, in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, I don't think we often think about that. Perhaps you do, but I, I don't always think about how my prayers are spiritually transforming the lives of another. I don't always think about how my prayers can spiritually transform another person's life and help them to grow in grace. But here's the thing, when we teach people the truth, it, it doesn't mean that they're going to embrace it. It doesn't mean that they're going to, to believe it. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, no one comes to know the Lord. And without our prayers to God, the Holy Spirit we, we, we pray, our prayers are effectual to move God to action. Paul writes in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And that phrase, by the will of God, is so important. It's God who brought Paul to his knees. It's God who made Paul a believer and an apostle. And you better believe there were people praying about Paul. Either they were praying for his salvation or praying because he was threatening them. God, do something about this guy. Well, they, they might have meant strike him dead. But Jesus chose the other option of striking him blind. And then he goes to Ananias and says, I want you to pray for this guy and I want you to receive him. What? Are you sure about that? This guy? 
Paul, Saul, the guy who's persecuting your church? Look, Paul knew everything there was to know about Holy Scripture. It wasn't just the Scripture alone that was going to change him. It had to be the Spirit of God by and with the Word of God that was applied to his heart to transform him, to bring a dead man to life. Which is why prayer is so important when when we talk about discipling another or sharing the gospel with another. Prayer is the means by which we help others come to know and grow in the Lord. Prayer is a reminder that God is the essential part of the equation of someone coming to know him, of heart change and life change. I think sometimes we think of intercession for others is all about their situation. And yes, we're called to pray for people in their situations. We pray, Lord, I pray Susie might be healed from her broken leg. That's good. But we should also pray this, Lord, I pray that you would help Susie learn what you're teaching her through this moment where she's struggling with her broken leg. We pray, Lord, I pray that you'll help Tommy get a new job. But we also need to be praying, Lord, I help you, I pray that you will help Tommy understand what you're trying to teach him in his life as he's struggling to find a job. Because the sovereign Lord brings things into our life to teach us. And, and typically we're praying that people will just get through them. When God has something to teach us in the midst of those things. And so we need to be prayer, in prayer for those that we know who are struggling. That God may be teaching them greater dependence upon him. Likewise, how often are we truly praying for the spiritual growth of our children, our family, and our friends, fellow believers around the world. That's what Paul is doing here. He's praying for a people he has never met, a passionate prayer. He isn't praying just for their physical needs, and he's not praying that they would avoid persecution. He's praying for them to grow deep in their love for Christ, deep in their knowledge of Christ. So how should we pray that Paul conforms our own prayers for others. How should we pray for other spiritual growths? Well, we see several things here in verses 9 through 12. First, we pray that others would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and would receive wisdom and understanding. In this, we're praying for the relationship with Christ to be not just a matter of knowledge, not just head knowledge, but real. Not a knowledge that puffs up, that makes us feel superior to Rather, we're praying for wisdom. We're praying for understanding that it's markedly different. And one of my favorite examples of this kind of wisdom, what we're praying for other people, is found in, um, it's found in the gospel when Joseph found, finds out about Mary, finds out that Mary is with child. Before he finds out that she is with child by the Holy Spirit, it says in Matthew 1.19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I'm sure he was angry. I'm sure he was hurt. I'm sure he was upset. And he had every right to parade her in front of everybody and castigate her and humiliate her 
And yet the wisdom of God impressed upon his heart that that was not the way, that that wasn't right, that he should not do that before he even learned that this was from the Holy Spirit, back when he thought this was adulterous. It's like the anonymous quote, a smart person knows what to say, a wise person knows whether or not to say it. We all need to pray that we would grow deeper in our wisdom, and we need to pray the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. But second, we pray that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. I would say that we live in a day where people compartmentalize things, especially their faith. You talk to another believer, what they allow into their lives, what they allow into their world, tends to shock you. I've I've met believers that are cohabitating with their girlfriend. I've met believers who, I mean, you go down a long list of things. And when you address them on it, you get the immediate wall. Well, I have freedom in Christ, I can do. And what, what, the, what, what Paul's doing here for the Colossians is praying that they would not have those rooms in their heart, and we all have them. I'm not speaking judgmentally of other people. I have rooms in my heart that, that are marked for the Lord, but locked up nice and tightly. And I get to keep the key. But it's only a matter of time before Christ knocks on that door and is is asking me to open it up. That he might have sovereign rule over everything in that room. Whatever it is, whatever it might be. I remember a time when I was uh, dating my wife and um, I was in college at the time and I loved this television show. I'm not gonna tell you what television show it is, but it aired on MTV so that'll give you a, That'll give you an idea of what it was like. It was a pretty crass show, but I thought it was funny. And um, my, my would-be mother-in-law at that point was like, you, you watch that show. She's like, it's, it's kind of a foul show. And I'm like, and I was very defensive. Oh, no, it's, it's all right. It's funny. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it. it's just really funny. I just, you know, and, and she didn't really say anything else to me about it. She just kind of nodded hmm, with a concerned look on her face. And uh, this show became a movie, and I was so excited. Uh, and she knew I was going to go see it. My wife knew I was going to go see it. She, did, she wasn't excited about it either. But I go to see this movie. I'm excited about it. I'm sitting there. And about halfway through, I was thinking, this is kind of vile. This is kind of foul. This is kind of disgusting. And for the first time in my life, I, I've sat through some really, really bad movies because I want to get my money's worth. But I got up and walked out of that movie. I don't even know how it ended, and I don't care. I was disgusted with it, and I never went back to it again. Here's the funny thing. <laughs> when I told my wife, well, she was not my wife at that time, but she, just, she said that her mother had been praying me out of the movie theater. <laughs> how many times have we gotten to someone I've gotten into an argument with someone about what they're doing. And yeah, confronting people is important in in, in the gospel. But at some point, you hit a a dead end. You you hit a wall. And it's got to be something the Holy Spirit does in them. We We need to be praying for that in their lives. We need to be praying for that in our lives. We need to be praying about the blind spots that we have, the doors that we have locked. 
the things that, that, that we have said, this is fine. And we need to pray for the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Third, we pray that they would bear fruit in every good work. Now this sentence sounds like a lot of Christianese. So what's Paul really saying here? It's nothing less than a prayer that God would work through the believers in Colossae to advance the kingdom. It's a prayer for their faith to mean something. That it isn't just a private thing. But not only would they they recognize their spiritual gifts, but they would use their spiritual gifts in the church. When we pray for the growth of others, we're praying that they would put their faith in action. They would live it. They would be clear that their faith in Christ compels them to be involved in something bigger than their own needs. That they too would pass on what they learn to others. That's bearing fruit. But it is a prayer that they would produce real fruit, not wax fruit, not the fruit of legalism or moralism that's attractive to no one. But that their labors in Christ would come from the overflow of gratitude that they have for being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we must pray that disciples in Christ would grow in that, in that, that faith, that, that it wouldn't be a faith that just sits on a shelf, but it would be a faith that produces fruit. Fourth, we pray that they would be strengthened with all power so that they might endure patiently and with joy. What are they enduring? Probably persecution, both the everyday slights and the more violent variety of persecution. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But it's not just the persecution that they need to endure with joy. It's the fallen world and the pains of the fallen world. And he's praying for them to bear up under because it's very easy to lose heart in the middle of a fallen world. To see that the Lord is tarrying and coming back and wondering, when is that going to happen? Dr. Yusuf will be telling us that in the next, in the next sermon. What Paul says in Romans 8, 19 through 22 really connects back to the idea of hope being laid, for us, laid up for us in heaven. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's a danger of disillusionment not just for new believers, but for all of us who believe in the Lord. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't write to believers in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, but, but for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Clearly, Christians in his day were struggling against life in a culture and a world that was very difficult to bear up under. And we need one another's prayers because at any given moment, We're under the pressure of the world. And sometimes our faith just doesn't make sense. We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters to uphold us during that time. To help us make sense of our faith. To bear up under. And to be able to not grow weary. Especially during difficult seasons. During times of persecution. As well as just living in the disappointment and the disillusionment of a fallen world. 
But finally, we pray that they would remember to give thanks for all of the deep spiritual realities that are true in Christ. In the last few verses, 12 through 14, Paul writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul's not only urging them to give thanks. He's praying that they would remember the depths of God's love for them, and they would give thanks. He's praying for them to have thankful uh, hearts, to, to, to have a gratitude about them to remember what Christ has done for them, to remember that he's qualified them, to remember that he's transferred them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Because it can be very easy for us to forget that. It's very easy for life to steamroll us to the point of not remembering the deep truths of Christ. To be beset by problems and not think about how God has shown us goodness and mercy in our lives. And so he prays that they would be stirred up, that they would be thankful. Not only does it do our heart good to give thanks, it does our heart good to pray that others would be thankful in their lives. It has a reciprocal effect on us. As we look at these five different ways for praying for others, as we look at teaching people the truth, teaching and discipling them the truth, and praying that the Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts. It reminds me of something that happened just recently in the Olympics. This sort of, of discipleship, the fruit of discipleship was on display, and this sort of thankfulness was on display recently at the Olympics. Sydney McLaughlin, USA Olympic hurdler, beat her own record in the 400-meter hurdles and she was stunned. She viewed the whole thing not through the lens of self-accomplishment. She could have patted herself on the back, said it was due to all her, her training, all her hard work, but she instead viewed it through the lens of her own faith, a faith that was taught to her by others and a faith that was galvanized by the prayers of others in her life. And this is what she said about her win. The mental strain of preparing for the rounds in order to solidify your spot is heavy enough. But the amount of weight the Lord took off my shoulders is the reason I could run so freely yesterday. My faith was being tested all week. From bad practices to three false start delays to a meat delay, I just kept hearing God say, just focus on me. It was the best race... <laughs> This is great. This is the best race plan I could ever have assembled. No longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Thank you, Father, she wrote. She's 21. At the age typically still marked by so many of immaturity, of self-interest, 
McLaughlin has come to a perspective that might take decades and hardship for someone else to come to. It's maturity of faith that was wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit by those who were invested in her life. I imagine many years of faithful prayers by parents and grandparents, coaches and other people in her life. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about passing on the faith. This is what we want to see. We want to see a generation that owes everything to Christ. We want to see a generation that has abandoned everything for Christ. And instead of seeing life through the lens of their own self-gratification and their own self-accomplishment, we lift up praise and thanksgiving and glory to God. Let us reach others with the word. Every one of us. And let us everyone pray for this kind of spiritual growth in others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we look at a life that would give all recognition for its achievements to you, may it remind us that everything we have, everything we own, is from you. May gratitude and praise and thanksgiving be on our lips, not only for the achievements that you've caused us to have in this life, but because you have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Lord, if that does not make our heart move, move our hearts. And then move our hearts to want that for other people, for another generation. And give us the words to share the true gospel. And may we pray for the spiritual growth of not only ourselves, but our brothers and sisters in Christ. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.